for I am already on the point of being sacrificed. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and Trophimus I left ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you as do Putins and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. The Lord be with your spirit and grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This past Thursday, I was on my way to a meeting when the Reverend Keith King stopped me in the hall on the way and said, I got to tell you a quick story. It turned out that morning he had been down at Rancho Village where we have our mentoring program. He is the staff representative that helps to reach out with this ministry. And he was telling me about how our boys, our third and fourth graders who are in mentoring, had a project where they were going to wind up giving pumpkins to the children who were in the special needs classes there at the school. And so they had been working at decorating the pumpkins, and then they were going to take them down and give them to these children in the, in the special needs classes. Well, as they were getting ready to do that, Bruce Stover, who is one of the leaders in this program, started asking the boys and saying, well, now, what are we going to say when we give them the pumpkins? And one of the boys spoke up. It was obvious his teacher had already been talking about this because he said, you know, my teacher said, well, the children in special needs are just like us. It's just they have more to overcome. Another boy spoke up and said, well, I think when we give them the pumpkins, we ought to say, we care about you. Well, they had good ideas. They were ready to go. They got them decorated. They went down and they gave out these pumpkins. They had such a good time. You could tell it was meaningful to them. And after it was all over, they they were back visiting with the assistant principal, Melody Main, and they were telling her about what they had experienced and what it had been like. And they were saying, this was so very much fun. And she said, well, thank you so much for what you had done. And one of the boys pulled back his sleeve and held up his arm, and he had on his St. Luke's band, his wristband, and he said, that's all right, what we do matters. Yes. He told me the story, and I went straight up the stairs into a meeting about El Sistema. And there we sat with all of those who had been instrumental in getting it started, a little more than five years ago. It was in September of 2013. We sat around reminiscing and thinking in five years' time how far we had come, far faster and greater than anything we could have imagined. No, it was five years ago that we had 100 students. We had rented space at Trinity Baptist Church, 
And there these kids came. They were third, fourth, fifth, and sixth graders. And we gave them instruments, everything from violins to flutes to trumpets. And we began teaching them how to play and how to play classical music. Well, five years have gone by. We now have 250 students. And in a year and a half, we're going to wind up graduating our first class. The kids who will have started way back here in elementary school will have come all the way through the program and they're going to be graduating. And let me tell you, the music that these children now make is amazing. You know, we've seen them put on concerts down at Myriad Gardens. We know that we've partnered with um, Carnegie Hall. Amazing things have happened. But of course, that's not really the issue, the music they make. No, the issue is that they've stayed in school. The issue is grades have gone up. Discipline problems have come down. The, the difference is suddenly they have vision and dreams. No, they're going to graduate from high school. They're going to go to college. These children's lives, the trajectory of their lives, has been changed forever. The little boy at Rancho Village was right. What we do matters. This morning, I want to continue on with this sermon series, What You Do Matters. And I want us to look at this passage from Paul's second letter to Timothy. Now, we know Paul is in prison in Rome. And we know that Paul is going to die soon. Paul knows it too, because he says, I'm already on the point of being sacrificed. The time of my departure has come. He knows it. But he's writing this letter to Timothy, his son in the faith, and he's sharing with him. He's trying to encourage Timothy. He's expressing his love for Timothy. And it's a very special, poignant letter to have The Apostle Paul, now the older man in prison in Rome, writing to Timothy, his son in the faith. After all these years of being out there and a missionary working so hard in all these different cities, he now writes to Timothy because he knows the end is coming soon. And when he writes to Timothy, and I think that Timothy gets this letter and begins to read it, that's going to really impact his heart I know that the time of my departure has come. It's going to make Timothy stop for a moment and think about the fact that the departure of our all comes. For all of us, that time of departure comes. And it's a good thing for us to think about that. But it's also a time for thinking about how the departure of the people we love the time for their departure comes. And Timothy, what are you doing about it? How are you seizing the moment? Your time comes, but the time comes for the person that you love. So what do you do in the moment? I'm sure that many of you saw in the news as I did that just a couple days ago, Paul Allen died. Paul Allen, you may remember, 
grew up being closest of friends with Bill Gates. They went to the same school together. They grew up together. They dropped out of college together so they could go start this new business, Microsoft, together. And, of course, it led to both of them being some of the richest people in the world. Well, Paul Allen had a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and he passed away a few days ago at the age of 65. He lived an amazing life. In the end, he became the owner of the Portland Trailblazers basketball team. He also was the owner of the Seattle Seahawks football team. And I saw a statement where if you go watch them this afternoon, they're going to have a patch there on their jerseys. And it's the 12th man flag, and it will have his initials on that. They will wear it for the rest of the season to honor their owner. But Paul Allen not only enjoyed life, he was a great philanthropist going out of his way to bless life and to support so many different organizations. And so much so that he assigned what was called the giving pledge. The giving pledge, if you're not remembering, it was when a a number of all these really wealthy people, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and the likes of that, began pushing and saying, people who have such wealth, if we would sign the giving pledge, it means that during our lifetime or when we die, we will give away at least, at least half of all of our wealth to bless life. What a difference that could make in the world. And it was about 10 years ago that Paul Allen signed that pledge. And I'm anxious to see where the money will go. And he has a worth of over $20 billion dollars. But it was back in about 2009, he was being interviewed. He was struggling, again, with the cancer. This went on for several decades. And about 10 years ago, when he was back in treatments, he was being interviewed. I want to read you what he said. Whenever you go through one of these treatment regimens, there are many things that are completely out of your control. You have to be patient and hope things work out for the best. On the other hand... Realize your time may be limited. So it makes you that much more focused on realizing your hopes and dreams because all of our times on this planet are limited. You look at things you enjoy in your life, but much more important is what you can do to make this world a better place. When you realize your time is limited when you realize the time of the ones you love is limited, then how do you choose to spend your time? Because what you do matters. When I started working on this, I I started reaching out and uh, I I talked to Reverend Connie Barnett and and to Dave Petit and up to Reverend Josh Attaway. And I asked him, I said, over this last month, the different funerals that we've done, what are the ages Across all of our campuses, what are the ages of the people who have died? And so these didn't happen in chronological order, but these are the ages of the people who passed away. We buried someone who was 86, 79, 71, 68, 60, 47, 40, 30. No one knows the time that we have. When the hour of our departure comes, 
But when we're forced to stop and think about it, as Timothy was being forced to stop and think about it, it tends to change what you do. Because what you do matters. As I was reading through this passage and looking at what Paul is now saying in the very end of his letter to his son in the faith, you know, there were about three things that really jumped out at me. First of all, it seems to me that the truth is the simple acts of kindness matter. The simple acts of kindness matter. Paul was writing and saying, if you would come, go by Troas and pick up my coat and pick up the books I left there and by all means get the parchments. Paul's in a prison cell in Rome. Winter was coming. It gets cold there. There wasn't heaters. No, if you don't have the right clothes, you're going to be cold in the cold, damp cell. If you go by Troas, I'd really love it if you pick up my cloak. And you know, there's nothing else to do here all day long. Could you pick up the books? And by all means, bring the parchments. I have letters that I want to write. Timothy was going to go... And I believe what Paul wanted more than anything else was not the coat and the books and the parchments. It's Timothy. For Timothy to come and to sit and be with his father in the faith and this man who loved him so much. It is the small acts of kindness that matter. I don't know if you saw in the news this week, there was a great story that came out about a kindergarten class up in Tennessee. I don't know if you saw that. It was a, uh, a story about a, their janitor, James Anthony. James Anthony was um, going to be turning 60 years old. And he'd been the janitor there at the school for 15 years. He'd been working for the school district for about 30 years. When James was a child, he'd had polio. And it really affected his ability to walk. He got around, but you could tell there was a problem in his gait. It also left him deaf. He was very good at reading lips. And and so he could see the kids, and he would understand when they were talking to him. And he would go down the hall, and he'd give everybody a high five, and and he would always encourage them. The children loved James, and, and he so loved them. The teachers said his spirit was always up. He just was a joy to be around. Well, this last Tuesday, he was turning 60 years old. And so the kindergarten class decided to surprise him. And they told him, you need to come down to the kindergarten class. And of course, he thought, if I'm going to the kindergarten class, there's a mess again. And so he goes down to the class, and when he walks in the door, he had no idea what to expect. But there were these kids all lined up in rows with the teachers, and they started to sing Happy Birthday and to sign Happy Birthday. And when he saw all these children signing happy birthday, he lets out this squeal. He literally hollers. He is so surprised. And then he's just laughing and and then he just starts crying. He goes over and he takes a seat and the children come around and they high five him and they hug him. And he says, you know, this is the most meaningful birthday present I could ever receive. 
Well, there are other people who are there using their cameras and taking their pictures. And one person went over to interview two little girls sitting at this table. And they asked this one girl, why did you do it? And in typical kindergarten style, she said, because I wanted to. And she said, besides, Mr. James is so nice. And then you could tell the wheels were turning. She got quiet for a second. And then she said, and it made me feel so good. The small, simple acts of kindness that bring a smile, that brighten the world, that bless life, they do something also for your soul. When you tweet and text angry, when you post with criticism and anger, does it make you feel happy? We live in a world where we have become sharp and critical and angry. And when we live with that, that does something to our soul and to the world. As the disciples of Jesus Christ, you and I have been called to rise above that, to do better than that. As the disciples of Christ, you and I have been called to share God's love and bring hope in the world. And when you and I are willing to do the simple acts of kindness, they matter. They bring a smile. They bless the life. They change the spirit in our world. It'll do something for your own heart. What you do matters. Secondly, as I read, I'm, I'm very clear. We are going to be remembered for the love we share and not for the things we leave behind. Paul is writing to Timothy and he just starts remembering all the people he loves and people who have loved him. Remember to say hello to Priscilla and Aquila. He starts going down the list. When you come to the end, you start thinking about the people who loved you. But I have a feeling for Timothy, he's thinking about Paul and Paul is writing to him because he loves Timothy so much and it's Timothy who's going to call Paul's name. You're the one who loved me. But I wonder if it makes Timothy stop and think, one day, who will call my name? Who will remember me? I remember Paul. He loved me. He blessed me. But one day, who's going to remember me? You and I will be remembered for the way that we love. I told you how the spirit of this sermon series and the title really came about from a visit to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and when you walk to the Holocaust Museum and you spend hours and you start following the years, how in Germany you had the rise of the Nazis and you see what began to happen and how 11 million people would be put in these concentration camps and how they'd be treated and how all these Jews would be sent to their death. I mean, it is just heavy. It is overwhelming. But as you go through what you also start seeing are stories about people who stepped up to help. 
people who chose to love and care and risk so much to help hide the Jews or to help get them out to freedom. You start hearing the stories of people who chose to do something and care. And then you also realize there were so many, the majority, who chose to do nothing. They just chose to do nothing. And you realize there's something so important about what do we do to confront racism, to confront prejudice, to confront hatred. And if you think those days are gone, that it was just back in the 1930s, there in 40s in Germany, well, all we have to do is look at what happened in Pittsburgh just yesterday. That you would have 11 people who would go to worship and not go home. Because of prejudice and hatred? We are called to confront that. We are called to be the people who do something about how do we love and how do we care in a way that we make a difference. You know, it's why at St. Luke's, probably about seven years ago now, we we brought the the Bow sisters to here at at St. Luke's. They were wonderful people. It was Hadassah and Selah. They were the children of Rebecca and Joseph Bow. They came here through the Jewish Federation here in Oklahoma City. And we wanted to bring them here on a Wednesday night alive so we could hear and we could learn about some of the Jewish history and what happened in the Holocaust and what does it mean. And they stood right down here and they were amazing. The stories that they told. No, it was Hadassah who started telling us the story of her mother, Rebecca. And how she was in Auschwitz. It turned out that while she was in Auschwitz, that's where she would meet her husband, Joseph. In fact, if you ever saw the movie Schindler's List, you you remember that there is a couple who meet in the concentration camp. They fall in love in the midst of all of this horrible situation. They fall in love, get married. Both of them will survive the concentration camp. They will find each other after the war And they will live together for the rest of their lives and have these two children, the two women who came to visit with us. Well, Hadassah tells us about her mom, Rebecca, when she was in Auschwitz, and they had what was called the presentation. And every so often, it was Joseph Mengele, the SS officer, angel of death, who would hold the presentation. And what happened was you had to line up, and then you were stripped of all of your clothes, And you then had to come before Mingale. He wanted to see you from your feet to the top of your head. Did you have bruises? Did you have cuts? Were you bleeding? Was you hurt in some way? For when you came before him, if he saw something like that, to the left, to the gas chamber, to death. If you were healthy and strong and you came before him, he simply pointed to the right. You lived to work another day. Well, her mother was lined up with all these women to be coming forward when there was a mother and her 10-year-old daughter behind her and somehow this daughter did something to provoke this soldier who just began to hit her with the butt of his gun on her legs and she began to scream and to cry and she fell down and she was bleeding. Well, suddenly everybody backed up away from her. They just formed a circle. They backed away. Nobody wanted to get blood on themselves. No one could afford to that because they knew you had to go forward with blood, 
to the left. But this mother is crying and asking somebody to help. And it was Rebecca who had been a nurse. And she managed to find some cloth and she knew what to do. She grabbed snow and began rubbing it on her legs to try to get rid of the blood, slow down, use the, the, the cloth to tighten and how to stop the bleeding, continued to get snow to put it on there to stop the bleeding. And then she said to this mother, if we would go shoulder to shoulder in a presentation at the same time and have your daughter up close behind us, maybe they would not see her legs. She was risking her life on many levels. And now they went forward. They were healthy. They were strong. Mingala looked to the right. They lived to work another day. Rebecca, as I told you, would survive. It was 30 years later. She and Joseph were together. They had a couple of kids. And there was going to be a reunion of people who had been in Auschwitz. People wanted to find others that they had lived through this experience together. You didn't have internet and things in those days. Finding people was hard. An event was organized to bring people who had survived Auschwitz together. And Joseph and Rebecca were there, and they were talking with people And suddenly a woman began hollering, Mama, Mama. And they turned around and here was this woman at a distance who was coming towards them. She seemed to be looking at Rebecca and she's going, Mama. And Rebecca looked over at Joseph and said, Trust me, I do not know who this woman is. I have not had babies by anybody else along the way. But she kept coming and she came up to Rebecca and Rebecca said, I'm sorry, you must be mistaken. And she said, no, no, you don't recognize me? No. I was 10 years old. You knelt down and you bound up my wounds. For 30 years, I've been looking for you. For 30 years, every day I have prayed for you. You bound up my wounds. You washed off the blood. You gave me life. You are my mama. You have the power to give life. When you share God's love, you help to bring hope in this world. When you become the hands of Christ, you help to give life. What you do matters. You will be remembered by the people that you love. The people to whom you help to give life. And so third, I'm clear that you and I have the opportunity now to bless life, to help change this world. You and I have the opportunity Now, Paul says to Timothy, come to me soon. And then at the very end, he adds, come before winter. You see, winter was coming. And Paul and Timothy and everybody knew the shipping lanes closed down when winter came on the Mediterranean 2,000 years ago. You couldn't travel. 
And so, Timothy, either you're going to go now or you're not going to go till spring. You have the opportunity to come now or you can wait till spring. But the time of my departure, it's come. Now, we don't know what Timothy did. We have no historical accounting of what he did. What I would like to believe he did, what I feel fairly certain he did. He set aside what he was doing and he went to Troas. And he picked up a cloak and some books and some parchment and he went to Rome. And he would be there with his father in the faith until he died. You get an opportunity and either we take it or it goes by and you don't get that one again. I think sometimes you and I are sitting around waiting. One day I'm going to have the time and the health and the energy and then I'll be a mentor. Then I'll volunteer. Then I'll get involved with the kids. One day. One day I'll finally feel like I have enough saved up. Then I can bless life and give. One day I really want to do something significant. Truth of the matter is, the simple kindness you do today makes a difference. What you give, the way you bless life, the way you speak, what you do now matters. It was a two weeks ago or so, I, I was home on a Sunday afternoon, and I got to watch football with my grandson, Parker. He's eight years old. He's in the second grade, and he and Kelly had come in for a day and surprised us at the house, and he and I, he loves football. Let me tell you, for an eight-year-old boy, he, he knows a lot about the game and who the people are. And so we cheered and we watched football together. And when he got ready to go the next day, we were talking about the fact on Monday night football, the New Orleans Saints were going to be playing and Drew Brees was playing. And he's going, I'm a big fan of Drew Brees. And I said, well, I am too. I didn't know that about you. And I said, well, we can text about how the game goes. And the next night on Monday night, it was, it was Drew Brees and the New Orleans Saints. They were playing. And that's the night that Drew Brees set the all-time passing record for yards, over 72,000 yards passed. It was an exciting game. The Saints won, and here he got the record, and there was this wonderful interview with him. Now, I don't know if you know a whole lot about Drew Brees. You may not be a football fan or, or know about him as the quarterback there in New Orleans. But Drew Brees is a fascinating and wonderful man of faith, a great human being besides being such an incredible quarterback. Drew Brees was incredibly blessed because he was born and raised in Austin, Texas. I was wondering how many of you would get that. So um, he was born and raised in Austin, Texas. And he went to First Baptist Church. And he loved going to Sunday school class. That's where he had his friends. And that's where he learned the stories of Jesus. And it turned out when he was 17, though, he was sitting here in church. And when he's sitting in church, the pastor was talking uh, and using a line from one of his favorite movies, A Few Good Men. And the pastor was talking and the pastor said, The Lord is looking for a few good men. Is that you? And he said, I don't know, for whatever reason, that spoke to me that day. 
I decided I wanted to be one of those few good men. And he made the decision that this was going to be foundational in his life. And it has been. He actually wanted to go to the University of Texas and play football. They didn't recruit him. Instead, he went to Purdue. And he had this incredible career at Purdue. In the end, he, he was in the Heisman finalist two years in a row. Suddenly, Purdue is winning. And then he got drafted by the San Diego Chargers. He went and played for San Diego three years. His contract was going to be up. He was going to become a free agent. The last game of that season, he injures his right throwing arm. It gets put out of socket. Gets shoulder separated. The worst injury you can have if you're a quarterback throwing right-handed. And he said, I remember coming off the field and thinking to myself, I may never put on a Charger uniform again. And then it hit him. I may never play football again. He would go through surgery and rehabilitation, trying to heal. And not knowing where he was going to play, it was New Orleans who invited him to come down and and look at New Orleans. They wanted to meet him and let him see the city. It was six months post-Katrina. When he and his wife Brittany got there, they looked across the city and it was devastated. He said it was so trashed. He thought, this is going to take years to rebuild this city. And they thought, do we want to come to a place like this? But in the end, they offered him the job. And he took it. And in retrospect, people say, you know, New Orleans needed Drew as much as Drew needed New Orleans. Because his life was a wreck too. His shoulder, his health. He began to do his rehab and... Who would have dreamed that four years later, he would lead the New Orleans Saints to their first ever franchise Super Bowl victory. The first, the only in their history, four years later. But it wasn't just about football for Drew, it was about the city. You would find him all the time down in the lower ninth ward helping to rebuild houses. He and his wife started a foundation to rebuild all the athletic fields in New Orleans that were so damaged in the hurricane, kind of like fields and futures here in our Oklahoma City by Tim and Liz McLaughlin, members of our family of faith, rebuilding all of our athletic fields. Then they started doing parks. There was all kinds of programs for kids. Drew Brees, he's been an incredible blessing to New Orleans He needed New Orleans, and New Orleans needed him. It was a healing for them both in an incredible way. And I was seeing the interview, and he made a statement. He said, I see it as my responsibility, but also my privilege to be generous with what God has entrusted to me, to be one of a few good men. They were talking to Brittany, his wife, and she said, It's important for our kids to see us give. We tell them, you leave this world a better place than when you found it. People talk about fame and they talk about blessings, but really, that's ultimately what makes someone relevant in this world if they've done something to change this world for the better. That's what being famous is. We tell our kids, you can go out and throw 3,000 balls, make 3,000 catches, run 3,000 yards... But unless you leave the world a better place than when you found it, it all means nothing. 
you can leave the world a better place than you found it. When you choose to share God's love and bring hope in the world, when you choose to seize this moment now, come before winter. What you do makes a difference. What you do matters. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.